think it's really strange that our perceptions can be altered by a few repetitions of a short phrase. By a few repetitions by of a short few repetitions of a by short few repetitions by a few repetitions of a short few repetitions by a few repetitions of a short phrase. Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis. And I started this show because I wanted to learn more and share insights about the creative process of composing and songwriting. And after each interview, I feel like there's so much more we can learn about how music works. This episode is definitely one of those times for me. I'm really excited to share this talk with Dr. Diana Deutsch, who is one of the world's leading music psychologists. She pioneered this field when it was first starting out, and she literally wrote the book on music psychology. I think the coolest thing she's known for is her discovery of musical illusions. Diana explains how it's really easy for our brain to be tricked when we're listening to certain sounds. And she shares with us how composers can benefit from studying these musical illusions. Just a side note, for the full effect of these musical illusions that you're going to hear, it's best to listen to this episode on headphones. And stick around, because at the end of the episode, I'm going to explain how you can be part of a little experiment I'm going to put up at ComposerQuest.com. So I hope you enjoy my talk with Diana Deutsch. Diana, thanks so much for joining me on ComposerQuest. Well, I'm delighted to be here. When was it that you started being interested in music psychology and music perception? Oh, well... I had always thought when I was growing up that I would do music, that I would be a musician, but my my parents actually talked me out of it because they said I'd never earn any money. So I instead studied psychology and philosophy. And then when I went to graduate school in psychology, I was very lucky that somebody had produced some software that enabled a computer to create sequences of tones. And I realized that this was a great opportunity to study things like memory and attention and so on with precisely controlled parameters. And so that's in fact what I did in graduate school. I wasn't thinking about illusions so much at the time But then I stumbled on various illusions by accident. I was just very surprised at how bad the auditory system is, how it can go so wildly wrong. I think probably more so than the visual system. When you say the system goes wrong, what kind of illusion did you notice that first in? Well, the first one that was very, very striking was the octave illusion. Here you have a very simple pattern of tones, just two tones that go back and forth in pitch between high and low, and they're separated by an octave. And the listener hears it through headphones in such a way that when the high tone is in the right ear, the low tone is in the left ear, and when the high tone is in the left ear, the low tone is in the right ear. And this is played repeatedly. Now, you would expect that people would hear such a simple pattern correctly. And in fact, at the time, that was certainly the prediction. But 
it was a, a great surprise because what I heard was a single high tone that seemed to be coming intermittently from the right headphone and a single low tone that appeared to be coming intermittently from the left headphone. I switched the headphones around and I found that the high tone stayed in my right ear and the low tone stayed in my left ear. And I kept on switching the headphones around, it made no difference. The high tone stuck in my right ear and the low tone stuck in my left ear. So I realised it had to be something that was going on at the level of the brain. Yeah, I, w I was listening to that one and the same effect happened to me where the high tone's in the right ear, low tone mm -hmm. in the left ear. Did you switch the headphones around and... I did, yes, and it was the same effect. Yeah. And I was kind of curious, does that have anything to do with playing piano? I don't think it's anything to do with musical training at all. And now I've tested many hundreds of subjects on this illusion, and musical training doesn't seem to affect it at all. Neither does musical ability. The only thing that makes a difference is whether you're left-handed or right-handed. So mm -hmm. most people who are right-handed are going to hear what you and I hear. But when it comes to left-handers, the statistics change. Left-handers as a group are more likely to hear something different, such as a high tone in the left ear that alternates with a low tone in the right ear. Or even something more complex like an intermittent high tone in one ear and a low tone that seems to be changing in pitch a little bit in the other ear. For some reason, this illusion taps into the brain region that is involved in processing speech. If you're a candidate for surgery for epilepsy, surgeons have to find out which side of the brain is important for speech. Otherwise, if they do the surgery, they might interfere with your ability to speak. And they do an invasive test known as the WADA test. And we found that if you simply play people the octave illusion, you can predict their performance on the WADA test. So that can be of you know, real clinical importance. But it yeah. does seem to reflect um, which side of the brain is responsible for speech. So, for example, in this group, there was one subject who was strongly right-handed. And the prediction from handedness would have been that they would hear the high tone on the right. But she heard the high tone on the left, and very clearly. And then when they did the water test, they found that she was in fact switch dominant, that she had speech represented in the opposite hemisphere, which is unusual in the case of right-handers, but can happen. So if more work of this sort is done, the octave illusion might then serve as a reliable predictor of the direction of cerebral dominance, that is, which side of the brain is most important for speech. Hmm. Another thing that the octave illusion shows is that there are separate brain mechanisms, one for determining what pitch we hear and the other for determining where the sounds are coming from, and these can come to incompatible conclusions. And in this case, we take 
the pitch that comes in one ear and we join it to the location of the other ear and so we produce what's known as an illusory conjunction, a conjunction of pitch and location that isn't really there. And is that what's going on in the scale illusion? Yes, the illusory conjunction also, that's right. Next, we have the scale illusion. Listen to it first through headphones with the loudspeakers turned off. Listen to the pattern. If you hear higher tones in one ear and lower tones in the other ear, decide which ear is hearing the higher tones. Notice that you hear a higher melody that smoothly descends and then ascends in pitch together with a lower melody that smoothly ascends and then descends. Yet when each channel is played separately, you instead hear patterns that leap around in pitch. Equalizing the balance causes you to reorganize the tones so that you again hear two smooth melodies. In a sense, your brain is creating order out of chaos. The other illusion that Radiolab listeners might have heard out there is your speech-to-song illusion. Oh, yes. How did you come across that? Well, I came across this one really by accident. I was in the process of editing my own speech in the first CD that I produced called Musical Illusions and Paradoxes. And the first commentary has this phrase that includes sometimes Sometimes behaves so so strangely. And I had it on a loop because I was wanting to soften the P's and soften the S's and so on. And I started thinking about something else and forgot about it. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. And suddenly it seemed to me that a strange woman had entered the room and was singing. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. I didn't recognize my own voice at first. And, you know, this was sort of very surprising. And then I rather rapidly realized that actually it was my own voice coming out of the loudspeaker. But at this point it had turned into song. It's really cool hearing how when you hear your phrase sometimes behave so strangely back in context, it seems like all of a sudden you're singing out of nowhere. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. What do you think is going on in the speech-to-song illusion? Well, when we listen to speech in the usual way, its physical characteristics cause us to interpret it as speech rather than as song. For example, speech tends to consist of sounds that glide around in pitch. Sometimes it behaves so strangely. 
while songs are generally made up of relatively flat pitches and we interpret these as musical notes. When we hear someone speaking, our brains generally water down the pitches that we hear so that we can focus on the features of speech that carry the most meaning, and that's consonants and vowels. But when we hear song instead, our brains cause the pitches to be heard more prominently and so as musical notes. Now, the border between speech and song is a fuzzy one, since speech sometimes includes features that are more typical of song. And this is true of sometimes, sometimes behave, behave so, so strangely. strangely. Now, repetition is a hallmark of music, and it's certainly not a hallmark of speech, since the purpose of speech is to convey information about the world. And once this information has been conveyed, it's annoying to hear it repeated over and over. So, for example, if someone were to say, here's the shopping list, here's the shopping list, here's the shopping list, and continue doing that... We, people would find that pretty irritating and wonder if they're crazy, I guess. <laughs> but when we listen to music, we expect to hear phrases repeated and we enjoy the repetitions. So when we hear a spoken phrase that's sufficiently like music in other ways, and in addition it's repeated several times, we may switch to hearing it as song instead. I also believe that the sometimes behave so strangely phrase is rather unique in the following way. Its timing pattern is relatively close to that of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And its pitch pattern is fairly close to that of the Big Ben Chimes. Sometimes behave so strangely. So I'm thinking that at an unconscious level we recognize the rhythm of the phrase and we also recognize the pitch pattern which cues us into expecting it to be music. And so when, in addition, it's repeated, this extra cue causes us to hear it as song. And I should mention that when we switch to hearing the phrase as song, the pitches that we hear are not the same as those in the spoken phrase. Instead, our brain distorts the pitches so that we create for ourselves a melody that isn't really there. I did kind of notice that in hearing your test subjects who you asked to repeat the phrase it seemed like they changed the ending note. Absolutely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. 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 When I asked people to repeat back the phrase after they've heard it repeated, the pitches that they produced were much closer to the sort of canonical da-da-da-da-da-da-da um, than the spoken phrase itself. So they're distorting the pitches. On the other hand, when people are asked to repeat back what they heard when they've heard the speech only once, there's a huge variation. I guess you heard those examples in what... I did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the pitch level, the, 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 the intervals, and so on. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. So the people who didn't hear the phrase repeated a ton of times just considered it speech, and so it's all over the place. And when you hear them all together, it just sounds like chaos. But then the subjects who had heard it repeated started to think of it as song. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. 
and then you hear all those individual ones put together and they're they sound like a choir indeed it's it's very striking difference how many repetitions does it take to hear a voice as song well this varies from person to person and some people switch to hearing song after only one or two repetitions, but others can take about eight or nine repetitions for the switch to occur. But on the whole, after ten repetitions, it's rather unusual for somebody to not have heard song. Well, cool. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that's really cool that this just emerged out of one of your own recording projects. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, yeah. One of, one of my surprising, you know, one of the discoveries that I found really surprising. Were there any other surprising illusions? The tritone paradox, I noticed something weird was happening with sound patterns composed of these ambiguous tones. So the tritone paradox, it's basically that people can hear this progression going from one note to a tritone away, Mm -hmm. either up or down, and there's no right answer. That's right. So you found that people, based on where they grew up, hear this illusion differently. Yes. Why do you think that is? Well, strangely, I found that it depends upon the language or dialect to which the listener has been exposed, particularly in childhood. When I first started testing people on the Tritone Paradox, Most of the students here at UCSD were, in fact, English-speaking Californians. And I found that I tended to be the exception in what I heard. And this, again, was a bit strange for me and a bit surprised. I didn't know what the problem was with me, you know. But then when I went on a uh, lecture tour to Europe, I found that different audiences in different countries had different flavors when they gave a show of hands in terms of which pattern they heard as going up and which pattern they heard as going down. I became convinced actually when I was in Brussels and I was giving a talk to a very large audience because they all seemed to agree with me. It was amazing. It made me feel so good. <laughs> and then I thought, well, okay, south of England. So I started testing other people in the south of England and sure enough, they did hear that that was the explanation. Then I did further experiment where I had mothers and their children listen to this pattern. And the children and mothers agreed with each other, which again shows that the speech patterns that you hear in childhood are very prominent in determining how you're going to hear the tritone paradox. So the tritone paradox, let's say you're going to be listening to this C to F sharp. Mm Mm-hmm. So if a listener hears that going up, what does that mean about them? My guess is that most people who are at least from California would hear it go down. And that might well be true in Minnesota and Minneapolis as well. Do you hear it going down? I hear the first one going up. Okay. And I tested my roommate also. And he had the same, same experience. Oh, now that's interesting. So C, F sharp, I can tell you what I hear. I hear C, F sharp is going up, but I hear rather typically from, as a listener from the south of England, if I have a very homogeneous group of English-speaking Californians, they probably disagree 
I, I know the tritone illusion happens because the tones are really controlled. That's right. But do you think people hear music differently based on their native language or native dialect? I think so. I mean, I think if you consider orchestral music, such as, for example, Debussy, where you have this wash of musical tones, if you listen to that music very carefully and ask yourself, which is the higher melodic line and which is the lower melodic line, you'll find that actually it's difficult to decide. There's one particular one called Siren, where you have what seems like sirens sort of leaping up out of the water and then just going back again. Now, it may very well be that with such passages, if people were asked, what do you hear as higher and what do you hear as lower, they would disagree. Maybe performers and composers have to think more about music perception and music psychology. I I think that's true, though it's not too clear what can be done about it. I mean, could compose music for right-handers and music for left-handers, for example, if you want to play passages that have the same characteristic as the scale illusion, because that also works with orchestral instruments that are located to the left and the right of the stage. But I think, more importantly... Composers do need to recognise that music that's composed simply by abstract principle, the composer may find that listeners are not hearing the music as intended. Now, one example here is 12-tone music, the music that Schoenberg is most famous for. So when you have a row of tones, according to Schoenberg, you can switch around the octaves in which each note is placed and the listener will still recognize this row of tones. So the idea is that any C is interpreted as C and any D is interpreted as D. But in point of fact, that turns out not to work. And there's another illusion that I discovered. In fact, I wanted to investigate this very issue where I took a well-known tune and I placed its notes randomly in three different octaves, but I kept the note names. And I asked people to name the tune, and they couldn't do it. And in fact, I've, I've done this demonstration in front of large groups of musicians and it's very rare that they can recognize this melody so it's nothing to do with you know musical ability or or musical training on the other hand when I then played this um, melody with all the notes correctly placed within the same octave they had no difficulty But there's another twist to this. Once you tell people the name of the tune, they're much more likely to recognize it. So this is something that composers have known for, you know, hundreds of years, that you can set the stage by playing a a phrase. And once this is firmly embedded in the listener's 
memory, you can then go ahead and switch the notes around from octave to octave and they will, in fact, follow it and recognize the phrase. So this is an example of what psychologists call top-down processing. If you know what to expect, what to listen for, you're able to hear it. If you don't know what to expect, you can be completely lost. There are similar examples in vision. So, for example, you can take a picture and you can distort it so that it just looks like a set of blobs. But then when you say, well, this is a spotted dog, you then start looking for its nose, its ears, its tail, its legs, and so on. And then the whole picture emerges. And then you wonder how it was that you weren't able to recognize it in the first place. I wonder if that has part to do with why we appreciate some music more the second time around listening to it. I bet it does, yes. And that's another thing that I think any composer would agree with, a composer of contemporary music that, you know, using a computer to play phrases over and over again, is that as a result of hearing your own phrase over and over and knowing what you're listening for and tweaking it yourself and so on, by the time you're satisfied with the final result, you can be pretty sure that the listener out there hearing it the first time around is not going to be hearing what you're hearing. So having a lot of feedback from listeners is important if you want to create a particular effect. It's important to know that you're not just creating the effect for yourself and that other people who haven't been through the same process won't be hearing it. That is really good advice for composers, I think. I mean, it's particularly true now with computer music and with the ability to compose any way you want. In previous centuries, composers followed rules that have evolved by trial and error. Like, for example, the rule that forbids crossing of voices in counterpoint. The scale illusion shows very clearly that if you do cross voices and counterpoint, well, the listener's just not going to hear the crossing. The listener's going to reorganize the pitches. When you throw away these rules, and I'm not saying it's wrong to throw them away. I don't think so at all. I think it's great to compose new music. But then you don't have any rules of thumb to go on. And so it gets to be important to study perception instead You know, some composers are going to say, well, they don't care. They're composing just for themselves. And that's fine, too. You know, I compose for myself all the time. You know, it's just that, you know, they need to be very aware that when they do that, they shouldn't expect listeners to be hearing what they're hearing, necessarily. So you compose? uh, Yeah, I do. But I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't really generally talk about it very much. Yeah, I do compose. Well, how I mean, has... it's really in the process of composition that these illusions emerged, you know, just playing around with sounds in various ways and wondering how best to get various effects and so on. I've learned to always be surprised by what I hear, you know? So I know to be very, very open-minded. Well, what kind of topics are you most interested in at the moment? Well, I'd like to try to understand sometimes behave so strangely in more detail. I think it's really strange that our perceptions can be altered by a few repetitions of a short phrase and that these alterations can last for months and even years. Do you have any thoughts on how people who are writing lyrics could benefit from studying this speech-to-song? Illusion? 
Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Hadn't really thought about that actually. So, so, do you have any like specific ideas? Um. Well, I guess I haven't thought about it until just now either. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to think about it and have you back on Composer Quest sometime. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Dr. Diana Deutsch. I highly recommend checking out her site if you're interested in these musical illusions. It's deutsch.ucsd.edu, and Deutsch is spelled D-E-U-T-S-C-H. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to hear from you at facebook.com slash composerquest or twitter.com slash composerquest. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you have a chance to get involved in a little experiment. I want to hear what you perceive in Diana's tritone paradox. Like we talked about, these tritones either sound like they're going up or down, depending on where you grew up. So listen to the following samples and then go to composerquest.com Diana to enter in your results. <laughs> 